I remember waking up one morning and seeing this basin and these glaciers and in the snow and thinking it was a glimpse of heaven. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. We have a special guest for you today, Brett Rhinesmith is a world adventurer. He was an entrepreneur earlier in life, and it led him into many fascinating sports, mountaineering, ice and rock climbing, um, backpacking, canyoneering, skiing and ski mountaineering, whitewater kayaking and rafting, sea kayaking, uh, canoeing, scuba diving, all these things. He's a world traveler who has had lots of great adventures, and we are really glad that he can join us today. So, Brett, I told our audience just a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your connection to mountaineering. Yeah, I'm very fortunate that I'm able to pursue a lot of outdoor activities at this point in my, my life. My greatest passion is to, to be out in the Alpine and to do mountaineering technical climbing in high places. It's something that I, I have dreamt about and wasn't able to pursue for a number of years. Uh, after graduating from college uh, with a chemical engineering degree, I spent a lot of my time raising two wonderful children and uh, being married to a wife now for almost 30 years. And so during those years when you're just doing life and uh, having to deal with everyday job and family issues, wasn't able to pursue these, these activities. But a few years ago, was able to, to get back into the outdoor business and, and activities and, and to, to pursue this passion. It looks like you've climbed a lot of high peaks around the globe. Tell us about a few of those. Yeah, um, probably the first time I did a lot of Colorado uh, 14,000-foot mountains. And uh, there was a couple that uh, the previous year had an opportunity to uh, climb Kilimanjaro and was able to summit. And so they kind of got a passion for, for maybe doing some seven summits or or a tailored version of the seven summits. And so they uh, asked if I would uh, join them in, in climbing Mount Elbrus and uh in Russia, and it's the highest point in Europe. You don't always think of a mountain in Russia as being part of Europe, um, but it's in the Caucasus Mountains um, on a pass between Russia and Georgia, and so I was able to, to climb that mountain. How tall is this mountain? It's just over 18,000 feet, about 18,513 feet. You know, I've done quite a few of the 14ers in Colorado, and I've always wanted to go higher. What does it feel like between 14 and 18? That's a great question because it really depends on the individual. And and I think that was one of the things that's led me to, to climb mountains. As a kid, um, the, the Mount Everest uh, always had an allure. I remember doing a book report when I was in eighth grade on the, the Himalayas, and I think that's where you know, reading about those uh, early explorers and and the, the type of effect that high altitude has on your body. And it's one of those things that you always wonder, you know, will I be able to do it? Um, 
you know, so far in, in the climbs that I've had um, up to 18,000 and over 20,000 feet, you know, my body has uh, responded well and I haven't had any issues. Uh, and so I haven't had any adverse or unusual uh, effects. So you're one of the, the people that acclimate well to the altitude. Yes, I am. That's great. So what other mountains have you climbed? You mentioned 20,000 feet. So tell us about that. Yeah, that was um, the 4th of July. Is, it's just a memorable time for me because I was able to, uh, um, to reach the summit of Mount McKinley or Denali in Alaska on wow. July 4th, 2010. And that mountain is uh, 20,320 feet. I have heard people say that often Denali can be more challenging than Everest just because of extreme weather. What was your experience? Um, I got cheated on that experience because we uh, we hit the weather windows just right and were able to land at the Kaltitna base camp uh, or actually leave um, uh, from Kaltitna and go to the summit and back to Kaltitna in 15 days. And so we had very good weather in, um, I knew some people that were on the mountain, uh, just before our permit, to, to be climbing and they spent over three weeks or around three weeks on the mountain in, and didn't get a shot at the summit. Uh, got to the high camp around 17,000 feet and, and that was it. Wow. So you had a very successful trip then. Yes, it was. So mountaineering, um, let's talk about that in general. There are not a lot of people, when you think of the population of the planet as a whole, that have stood on a high peak, and some people wonder what the attraction is to it. What would you say, why would you encourage people to consider mountaineering as an adventure sport? You know, for one, it, it, it's something that is able to, to test yourself, um, to see if you're capable of, of, of the preparation that goes into it, the physical exertion, some, sometimes more than the physical is the mental fortitude that you need to climb a mountain. And, and, and so, you know, there's this part of it that that's a challenge in doing it. But I think even more for me is, is being in those high places, uh, even lower on the mountain on Mount McKinley. I remember waking up one morning and seeing this basin and these glaciers and in, in the snow and thinking it was a glimpse of heaven. Um, it can be a very spiritual uh, type of experience to, to see these places and to be in very adverse environments. And, and then there's also, you know, special things that you see um, from the summit or from, from these high places, you know, the views out over the valleys, um, sunrises, you know, back to, to doing mountains in, in, you know, that, that aren't necessarily 20,000 foot high is, um, is seeing wildlife and, and just, you know, the grandeur of creation. Well, let's go a little bit deeper into that. Can you tell us a specific story about an amazing experience that you had mountain climbing, uh, something that would really help our listeners to, to feel like they're there and to experience with you what hooked you to the sport. One of the experiences that I had was, was just recently, and it, and it just um, made me grateful that I've had a chance to, to do the type of mountaineering that I've been doing. And it was an experience that if I never climbed another mountain, I would feel like I've got a full life um, because it was um, just one of those perfect days. And it was on uh, Long's Peak in the Rocky Mountain National Park of Colorado. And um, after climbing up uh, into the basin and bivouacking the, the night before, got up early and, and climbed with a guy named Bob Chase. And we head up this, this one route. It's just to the, to the edge of the diamond. And it's called Keener's Route. And, and for me, it was a, a special climb because 
my uh, great-grandfather had climbed with a, a gentleman uh, named Keener that was a guide uh, on that mountain. And, and to try and to, to relive what my grandfather, uh, great-grandfather may have done was really exciting to do. And it was not an overly technical climb. It, you know, we were roped up on a number of different pitches, but it had a, a, a little bit of everything, you know, using crampons and ice act work, doing some traverses uh, across a ledge called the Broadway, and then doing some technical rock climbing to the summit. One of those days where Bob and I were just in sync, and, and we just flew up the mountain. We got up to the to the summit by, I think, 10 a.m., and uh, we were just really efficient and in sync with one another and, and had a really positive experience that we shared. So you said this was recently. I assume then this is a winter climb. It was a summer climb. It was about two years ago, about a year and a half. Oh, ago. okay. Yeah, yeah. So the Keeners route often holds snow all year round, right? That's correct. And, and you need to hit it kind of in a sweet spot. You, you don't want to get too early in the season where there's avalanche danger or a lot of deep snow. You don't want to wait too late in the season where it's melted out and you have a chance of some rock falls. So there's uh, kind of a sweet spot depending on how much snow we've received uh, of when to climb it. You know, climbers around the Rocky Mountain West a lot of them know about Long's Peak and the, the fame that the Diamond Route has, but a lot of our listeners have probably never heard of that. So describe the Diamond Route and what it was like to cross Broadway to go over that. It's a very airy place. I, I believe it's about 2,000, 2,000 or 3,000 vertical feet uh, of sheer rock uh, that just cleaved off uh, that route. And I, I believe it was first climbed in, in the 19. 60s um, was the first time that somebody had climbed that. And and so you've got this beautiful view. It's facing out as you look, as you're climbing that route and you're looking out, you're seeing out over the foothills and into the plains of eastern Colorado. And so in the mornings, the, the sun coming up is, is spectacular. It's it's a very rocky in, in environment. So it's just, it's, it's, it's got a very uh, beautiful part of, of Colorado. Wow, sounds like it has plenty of exposure to kind of get the the heart racing a little bit. Yeah, just at the at the top. Once you you top out on the last pitch, there's an overhang hung uh, spot that you can step out and and literally just look straight down to uh, the chasm below you, and and that was pretty spectacular. So you described this as as one of the best climbs. What in particular made this climb so I guess unique to you? You know, I think it, part of it was the connectedness that I felt with, with my climbing partner. We, we talked and we shared and we were just moving efficiently together. You, you hear in the climbing community, you know, the brotherhood of the rope. And I, and I felt that uh, very, very much with Bob as, as we climbed. We were, were very efficient in the climb. So, you know, part of it was the experience of uh, the physical experience that we had. Part of it was the beauty, you know, the the temperature that we had that day was, um, you know, warm with the this Colorado sun that, that it just warms through your your skin into your muscles and bones. And so, so part of it was what you what you felt with that, and with the you know the the light breezes, you know, it wasn't just howling. I've been in you know on, on some mountains, you know, where where the experience is different. You're got these winds that are just picking you up and, and, and literally moving your body because they're so strong with, with snow, you know, coming at you horizontally and just numbing and, and even creating frostbite on your cheeks. And so, you know, that that's has a different experience. But this one on this day 
was was one of uh, peacefulness, uh, tranquility. That sounds fantastic. I think uh, you did take us there. We can feel the sunshine. and <laughs> You know, is it scary to be on an exposed stretch like that? For me, um, I, I come from an engineering background. So, you know, when I understand the systems that are in place, you know, there's a comfort level uh, to it. There, I'm, I'm connected to the rock. And when you do things right and you understand your systems, you know, there isn't a, there's, there's more of a, a relaxed feeling that you can have and a peacefulness uh, that you can have. And, and there's those that don't know that and, and don't know their things, and they just take off. Uh, last summer there was a, an individual that um, got stuck you know, in the same area, they came up landslide, which is a, a snowfield. Uh, got out onto Broadway and then and then got stuck. And they didn't have the right gear, the the right systems, and the right knowledge. And and that's one thing you know that I really emphasize that that's important to to gain. And and there's times when I didn't have that knowledge and, and had uh, experiences that were scary. But again, on, on this, this climb on, on Keeners, uh, it was just, it was peaceful. It was great. I think that it can really be helpful to people that like adventure sports to hear a story about a time when things didn't go right and how you managed to get through that time. I think we can learn from other people's experiences a lot that way. So share with us a, a story about maybe when uh, you wish things would have gone another way and how you managed to get through. Yeah, in 2003, August 2003, I was climbing Mount Everest with a, with a couple. We had done a short training session in Colorado back in April of 2003, but we took off on that mountain a little bit ill-prepared, I would say. Part of it was um, they were living in, in Dubai at sea level, and, and so they weren't able to, to train at elevation. I was fortunate where I was living in, in uh, Colorado at the time at about 9,000 foot elevation and, and training hard, so my acclimation was, was good. And I, I don't think we fully understood the importance of that, and, and everybody reacts differently to the altitude. But on this trip, we, we had a couple different things that happened. Uh, one that was altitude-related, and, and it, it turned out well. What we did is, is Mount Elbrus is, is kind of a funny mountain in that it has lift service, you know, most, almost a lot of the way up to the thing, it's called the, the barrel huts, which is 12,800 feet. And so most people uh, will, will take these chairlifts up to the barrel huts, and then sometimes they'll take cats uh, up even higher. And so then all they have to do is just kind of the last bit. And as, as we were looking at that, he said, you know, that, that feels like cheating. So let's, let's do something a little bit different and kind of get off the, the trade route. And so we actually, there was, um, we saw this road that went up past this observatory and thought, you know, hey, let's go up that way. And then we'll cut across this glacier called the uh, Turksel Glacier. And then we'll kind of meet up with the main route at about 13,500 feet. So, you know, we're starting around 7,000 feet versus most people, you know, starting their climb at around 13,000 feet. As we crossed that glacier, uh, some of our training had paid off. The gentleman that was uh, uh, the middle person on the, the rope with us uh, fell into a crevasse, and wow. um, he was able to, to self-extract himself from the crevasse. And so, you know, we had some, you know, some uh, interesting experiences crossing this glacier. And we got up to this crew of 11 uh, area and uh, set up our camp and 
and we did, you know, we thought we were doing the right thing. We went up and did a, uh, an acclimation climb up to, uh, the past cough, uh, rocks, uh, which got us to about 15,000 feet and then came back, slept low. And then the next day we took off, uh, um, and climbed for the summit. As we were climbing to the summit, you know, I was feeling really strong in, in one thing that, um, that, that I was doing is I was kind of getting summit fever and pushing faster and faster. And we, at this point, didn't need to be roped up because we weren't crossing any glaciers. We, we weren't checking on each other as a team in the way that we should have, now that I can look back on that and say, you know, that's one thing that I wish I would have done differently. Because the, the gentleman that we, were, that we were climbing together with, um, he wasn't drinking enough water and started to get dehydrated. Well, we kept falling further and further behind on our schedule. And so at one point, he wasn't feeling really good. He says, hey, you know, you just go on and, and go to the summit and, uh, you know, we'll be fine. And so I took off on my own, made it up to the summit, and that's around 18,500 feet. And I was the last person to summit that day. And so it was really neat to have, you know, the summit of elders by myself. And so I came back off the, the summit and met the, the couple at the saddle, which is around 17,800 feet. And um, they were moving really slow. And they're like, oh, we're going to still try. And I said, all right, I'm going to stay here at the saddle. And because I could kind of see them most of the way up to the summit from the saddle. So they went maybe like about two or three more minutes. And then also they turned around and came back to me. And I'm like, you know, what's going on? And said, ah, and we're, you know, I'm not feeling really good. So as we're leaving the, the saddle and we're going across this flat thing, this guy ends up starting to get um, ataxic, which means he's, he's starting to, to stumble uh, as if he was drunk. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Acclaimed nature photographer John Fielder invites you to attend one of his popular Colorado photo workshops. Got an expensive camera? Get a return on your investment by learning how to use it. John will cut you to the chase by showing you his fabulous five camera settings. That's all you'll need. Then learn from the best how to use your eye to compose photos along secret roads in one of John's favorite Colorado places, guaranteeing you amazing images. Great food, great scenery, and great fun at sunrise and sunset. Visit johnfielder.com for the complete 2015 schedule. Hey friends, don't miss out on the family fun that is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness this summer. Paragus Northwoods Company, located at the edge of the wilderness in Ely, Minnesota, is a leading supplier of fun for families and friends in the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Paragus supplies the canoes and the camping gear that makes a wilderness adventure so easy and so enjoyable. Find them online at paragus.com, that's P-I-R-A-G-I-S.com, or pick up the phone and talk to their outfitting department at We're the only one on the mountain now, and we've got someone that that may or may not be able to, you know, to walk all the way down. You now, know, for so, clarification, is this because he was dehydrated, or because of the altitude, or a mixture of both? It, I, I think it's a mixture of both. I think it was it was really the um, 
pulmonary cerebral edema. So his he was having oh. swelling in his in his brain that was wow. going on, and it was affecting his his gross motor skills, so that um, he was having trouble walking. So we stopped and took everything out of his pack and, and divided it between between us and and tried to lighten his pack. And we were walking on either side of him, trying to 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 keep him keep him going and you know talking and trying to do that and we finally got through this traverse and at that point he sat down and he couldn't he couldn't walk anymore and so his his wife was on one uh shoulder strap i'm on his other shoulder strap we've got him in kind of a uh, sitting down glissading position so his body's in an l shape with his feet forward and we're literally dragging him off the mountain and 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 we're thinking oh you know this is terrible um and and i'm Mine's going and so forth. And uh, so his wife had, had a fat phone, so we, we called and tried to get one of the cats to come up and meet us because we thought once we get off this steep section and we get lower, it's going to, you know, we're not going to be able to drag him anymore, you know, because it, it wasn't steep enough where we could get the benefit of gravity. And so, you know, and they said, you know, it was hard because they're speaking Russian. So we really couldn't communicate whether they were going to be there or not. We thought, you know what, we just need to keep getting, you know, heading down. And so we got down, and it's right around the uh, Pashtakov rocks, so around 15,000 feet. We get off this steep section, and now we're like, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden, that drop in elevation, dropping around 2,000 feet or so, was enough that the swelling went down. You know, what I, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know specifically, but I think the effects were, were reversed by dropping elevation. And he stood up, and he's like, hey, you know, what's going on? And everything's... <laughs> and oh, and wow. it was, and it, and it was an answer to prayer too. Uh, and so then, you know, we were able to walk back down to camp that next day, but it was uh, kind of a, a good wake up call of being prepared, working together as a team, checking on each other and how, how are you feeling? Are you drinking enough water, you know, staying together as a group? And I know better than that. And and didn't follow you know some really basic skills for being in the outdoors and especially in a mountaineering environment. You know, it's so tempting to to want to make that run for the summit. I, I've seen it before. I've had to call off climbs um, when when there was a third member of the party that just really wasn't up for the task, and the the other guy was, "Let's go, let's go, let's go." <laughs> and I finally said, "Listen, I want to get up there too, but we're gonna we're gonna kill somebody trying here." And it's really hard when you've worked hard to get somewhere, you've you've traveled a long distance, you've planned, you've spent the money, you're there, and the dream is right in front of you, you can see it, and it takes a lot of wisdom, doesn't it, to, to realize. Yeah, yeah, it, it really, it really does. And and that's one thing, that, you know, one of the, the outcomes from, from this experience is some skills. Getting a wilderness first responder training or wilderness first aid at a minimum, wilderness first responder so that you can identify issues, uh, properly assess them, and then know what are some good protocols to handle emergencies in the backcountry. Taking avalanche training, you know, whether it's your Abbey 1 or Abbey 2, or even going further, there's, there's so much that a person can learn. And there, there's great organizations that are out there that that, that will give you those solid skills, um, because this situation could have ha- could have ended very differently. 
and real grateful that that things turned out the way they did. And so it would have been better for us to, you know, we did some skills training, but we could have done more. And and go, we could have gone out maybe with some more experienced people because this was the first, well, they had been on Chile and didn't have any problems there at, at over 20,000 feet. But I think it's it, it was a different uh, situation. It's closer to the equator, and we the acclimation was, was a little bit different. And, and sometimes, you know, some of the best athletes will still have these kind of symptoms and, and, and issues. If you don't mind, walk us through some of the symptoms of altitude sickness. Um, obviously, this gentleman was starting to struggle from it, but it, it got a lot worse than everyone thought it might. So what should people watch out for? What are the warning signs? Prevention is, is the biggest thing that, that you can do. And so uh, uh, avoidance, you know, in, in almost any outdoor situation is, is better than uh, having to deal with it. And so things that we could have done differently is we could have spent more time acclimating to the altitude. So going slower in doing that. So uh, one of the symptoms uh, of like the dehydration, which may have brought on the, the altitude sickness, uh, is your pee uh, yellow. So you want to drink plenty of water, you know, so that you've got uh, clear and copious uh, urination with that. Had he been peeing and in, in, in yellow, that would have been a sign that he could have seen and self-diagnosed. Um, another uh, early sign is having headaches. And you'll see that sometimes with someone coming from sea level just into the uh, lower 48 mountains, like in Colorado, Wyoming, you know, you can end up getting a headache with that. Uh, sleeping disorder, if you're not sleeping at night, that's another sign that, that you could be getting altitude sickness. Uh, nausea is, is another sign. And so those are some of the early warning signs when it becomes acute, like what we were dealing with. They can become a toxic, meaning that they um, could be stumbling, they could be slurring their words, and that's more related to the cerebral edema. A more common uh, high-altitude sickness is pulmonary edema, where you, they, you can't catch your breath, where you could um, be spitting up blood because the swelling in, in your lungs is is uh, breaking down some of the the vascular system. Wow. And so if someone finds themselves with some of these advanced altitude sickness symptoms, what do they do? The the first thing is is get lower. You know, I, I it may be anecdotal, but I, I believe what we experienced is is what can happen uh, if if you don't try to get it out and say, well, I'm going to spend another night up at elevation, or I'm going to keep pushing it to the summit. You know, had they continued to push past that saddle up to the summit, it may have not turned out as as well. So as soon as you have that. Going lower uh, typically will will address the problems that you're having. Um, they they have other high tech stuff. When I was on Mount McKinley Denali, um, where they it's called a gamel bag, which based is is a pressurized bag that that um, increases the the density of the air and, and therefore the amount of oxygen in the air. You know that that can help in, in acute situations where you can't get someone to a lower elevation with that. But really, the number one thing is head down. You know, drinking lots of water and heading down. They do have some meds that you can take. You know, the the, the better approach is 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 getting lower in elevation. No, good advice. Altitude sickness, even before it gets severe, can be very miserable. I have seen people on mountains who sit down and say. Just leave me here. I'm going to die. <laughs> oh. 
and you know maybe they're having a little bit of that cerebral edema <laughs> i don't yeah. know but I, i've seen people be truly miserable so here's a question on these higher climbs if someone goes up and they start having altitude sickness if they go back down to a level where they're comfortable let's say they're able to stay for a day or or more is it safe for them to try again to go back up um it, it can be you know I, I again i think everybody is different and their situations can be different and there's a lot of different factors that you can weigh into it. The story on this one is two days later, uh, he summited. So, oh, fantastic. Know, get, yeah, getting back down, uh, getting that rest, getting reacclimated, getting hydrated, and then heading, you know, there is the possibility of heading back up. But that's a, you know, there's a lot of factors that I, I think uh, you want to you consider uh, before making that decision. But you can do that. Oh, that's great. So before our interview started, you mentioned to me that you're uh, coaching a climbing team now. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great activity. Uh, there's a middle school, high school team that I um, uh, am an assistant coach with that, that's sponsored by our church. And it's a fun environment. You know, some, some students don't want to play the basketball or the volleyball or, or some of the other debate things. And it's just another alternative that, that people can explore. And um, one thing that I see in this community, especially in, in, in the climbing competitions that um, this gym that we're going to that sponsors is it's an encouraging environment. Um, and I've seen individuals that are, literally are afraid of heights. So, you know, if you get above uh, someone's head five feet off the ground, they get gripped and want to come down. And they can start in that environment, but understand the um, that brotherhood of the rope in the systems and that they're not going to get hurt uh, if they follow all the procedures and so forth and and can start to challenge themselves in, in that fear and have an enjoyment and have a, a, a friendship and a fellowship and encouragement um, in these climbing competitions. And uh, it's different than, than some of the outdoor climbing because it, it can be very noisy and a lot of people there. But it's a great place to get experienced, uh, to experience climbing and learn the techniques. And then, uh, if you desire, you can uh, translate that into to learning how to climb outdoors also. That sounds like a lot of fun. So for people that have never seen a climbing competition, would you describe how that works? Yeah, it's usually um, as a direct, the way that they're running this, this program, it's at an indoor gym. And in an indoor gym, um, we'll have walls uh, with holes screwed onto it. And there'll be a tape, a color tape sequence that will show you which holds you can use for your hands and feet and which ones you, uh, you can't use. And so you have to follow that route. And they have a, a system set up where you're on top rope. So there's a belayer that's uh, below you, and he has the rope through a, a device that can hold an individual uh, in case they can't climb all the way to the top, and you can also lower that individual back down to the ground. And that rope is runs all the way up to the top of the route and then back down, and the climber then ties into it. And so after going through a series of commands, uh, the climber can start out and start to climb the, the route. If you don't have to do it fast. You don't have to, to do it gracefully in, in that you're being judged like in diving or in gymnastics. Um, it Just if you uh, get to the top, then you've climbed that route and, and you get points depending on how, the, how hard the route is 
if you climb it the first time, which is called on-siding uh, the route, or you get additional points if you lead climb, where instead of having the rope all the way up to the top and back down, you actually start from the bottom with the rope and, and clip it into the call quick draw or protection along the way. And so the competition then is to see who can climb routes at first sight and how difficult of a route can they get up, and then there's a point system that determines who wins. That's correct. And they have two different types of climbing that are part of the competition. One is with the ropes, and the other one is, is a type of climbing called bouldering, in which you're never more than, you know, maybe eight feet off the ground, and, and you climb uh, this boulder problem, which is just a shorter uh, type of climbing, uh, but you don't need to have any ropes to do that, and, and you climb, and if you fall, someone is there just to spot you like a, a gymnast would be spotted. Well, that's, that sounds like a really fun thing. So there might be people in the, in the audience here who have never considered rock climbing who would like to try it, and I know, I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit here, in Colorado, there are some organizations that can help especially youth um, learn about these sorts of sports. One that you and I are both familiar with is outdoor leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the um, Jefferson County school system in Colorado has a program uh, at one of their schools called Warren Tech, and they have an outdoor leadership program. And in that outdoor leadership program, it's a, a high school course just like chemistry or math or social studies. It's for those that are interested in, in understanding the outdoors and, and adventure and learning how to, to do adventure sports, how to, to lead outdoor activities. And so it works on the soft skills, uh, the leadership skills, but it also works on the technical skills of how do you climb a 14 or go backpacking or how do you do the uh, cooking when you're outdoors? And, and even including rock climbing and, and other things like that, winter sports such as snowshoeing. And then for their second-year students, they get into more advanced techniques of, of going into canyoneering. We've done some ice climbing and, and uh, some river rafting type activities also. So it's, it's a great alternative to either augment some of your you know, basic uh, core classes in, in high school or if it's, you know, like, I'm not really good at math and I want to go pursue an outdoor uh, career, then you can, you can learn, you know, the basics of that and, and also achieve uh, some college credits, too. For our listeners who are in Colorado, friends, there's a great opportunity. For those of you who are not in Colorado, I'm really sorry. You've got to move here. <laughs> this, is, this is just a very unique place, and it's a, it's a fantastic place for kids to grow up and to gain a strong appreciation for nature in the out of doors. So that's fantastic. We mentioned early on that you had been an entrepreneur. I understand that you are now helping entrepreneurs to be successful, especially in outdoor adventure related businesses. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, after um, starting a business and, and building that up and selling it, I, I just like helping people, uh, whether it's helping them learn how to rock climb or you know, helping them to start a business. And so I've had uh, an opportunity to help coach um, and, and be a sounding board and provide some, some help to, to uh, a couple of guys that wanted to start a rock climbing business in Morocco. And so that's been a lot of fun. And, and just recently there's another uh, two folks that are starting a, an immersion into the outdoor adventures uh, here in Wyoming that are taking people out to teach them how to snowshoe or how to cross-country ski. 
and uh, and so I got to have at dinner and and kind of ideas, talk about marketing strategies, and you know who their clients are, what what they're trying to do, and and help them listen to what their their dreams are, and help them to kind of discover and really focus on you know what they're trying to do. That's neat. And friends, Brett has been kind enough to to say that if you are interested in learning more about these sorts of opportunities, he can be contacted via his email address, which is Brett at rhinesmith.net, and let me spell that, that's B-R-E-T at R-H-I-N-E-S-M-I-T-H dot net. So only one T in Brett. So Brett at rhinesmith.net. So Brett, thank you for that. I'm sure that there will be people out there that say, man, I, I've got to figure out how I can be a part of that. Well, I look forward to, to getting those emails. So Brett, our last question is about how your sport benefits yourself individuals or society as a whole. We want people to have the opportunity to give back. You know, we've had some just fantastic experiences doing outdoors-related things, and I would like to know what your perspective is on how mountaineering in particular can benefit people. You know, I, I think it, it benefits them through through challenging them, and it, and it can challenge individuals from from a physical standpoint, but it can also, from a mental standpoint, when you're in those high places and you get to experience this creation, this beautiful earth that we're on, can regenerate your soul. It can help you discover more uh, about yourself. That's great. Well, folks, this has been another podcast, the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Brett, thank you very much for visiting with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Kurt. All right. Take care. Hey guys, will you help us make the Adventure Sports Podcast successful? Take a few minutes to rank us on iTunes and leave a review. Subscribe, rank, review. Thanks. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us.